I have to go to all those legendary sex scenes. I'm very sorry. Of course you do. I'm very sorry. Of course you do, Nico. I'm sorry about that. Why did you wait so long? <laughs> so I've, uh, of course, listened to other podcasts and things about with you and about you and I was surprised to see that you didn't actually want to be an actor initially when you were young. Can you take us through how you first then got into that decision of, uh, okay, let's go for it? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Well, um, I grew up in the East Coast. People always assume because of my father, Kirk, that I grew up in California. But my parents got divorced when I was five or six. So I grew up in the East Coast. And I went to private schools, uh, boarding schools and this and that. And um, was uh, thinking about maybe going to Yale University. And I was graduating from prep school. And to be honest, Nico, my ass was so tight that I thought <laughs> I have got to do something, you know, make a major difference. So please explain the tight ass for everybody who's listening. It's just a tight ass. It's just, you know, I, I was, I don't know, I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. And, um, You know, I was a bit of a what we call a preppy in the East Coast. And so I remember you, you go to your high school, they have a college advisors, and they're a little bit like travel agents. They had these brochures and they go through these brochures like a travel agent looking at different universities. And it said, I said, wait a minute. And I saw this brochure and it said, Campus by the Sea. And I looked at it and the cover, this was 1963. And the cover of the brochure, there was no ivy-covered buildings, no nothing. There was a guy walking down the beach carrying a surfboard and two girls in two-piece bathing suits. Now, back east in 1963, I had never seen a two-piece bathing suit. And all of a sudden, I saw this university. With a guy walking with this, I said, I want to go there. So already interested in girls back then? I was, I was in boys' schools all my life. I hope so. I was in, it was always boys' schools. So uh, it turned out to be the University of California at Santa Barbara. And this was a time when um, the university system was, was really strong. Anyway, I went out there, 1963, and I became a hippie. You know, I became flower power, all of that. So I was having a wonderful time in school, and finally my third year of college, they called me into the office, and they said, you have to declare a major. You can't keep taking general education courses. You have to declare a major. What do you want to go, what do you want to do? And I had no idea. I said, uh, I don't know, man. I don't know, man, what do I want to do? Okay, far out. I said, okay, and my mother, my mother's an actress. She's just not as, not as well known as my father. My father said, I'll take theater, man. I'll do theater. And that was how I started reluctantly. Um, had terrible stage fright. Used to go on stage with a wastebasket off stage that I would get sick in before I'd go on. Jeez, that extreme. The extreme. I, I, I don't know. And then something, I, then I started just fighting through it. I just decided, look, I'm, I'm going to conquer at least my stage fright. And, and that's how I started. My father came and saw my first shows and said, you are terrible. And he was actually relieved because he didn't think he had to worry about his son becoming an actor. And, um, and that's how it started. You now 
mentioned uh, your father quite a few times already in this first part, so this seems to be a huge uh, role in your life. And I, I have, I can I, well, relate I, to I, that because I, I, I have also had a very strong father and very successful father. Do you think that also then uh, resulted in this lack of confidence initially because you looked at your father and he is sort of he was judged by society as cool and right. and that was sort of where you had to go as a, as a man to become accepted by society in your eyes maybe but of course it's unattainable because it's so big do you think that resulted in a little bit in this extreme lack of confidence that you had um i'm sure i'm sure that i don't know if it necessarily was a lack of confidence in myself it was just a a, a stage fright of standing in front of people Uh, performing. I mean, other things I felt, you know, comfortable about. Um, but I'm sure his success and his persona probably uh, intimidated me, certainly to go into this area uh, initially. But I do share that with you because I know a little bit about your history, Nico, and and, and realize that that um you know between car racing and and other aspects of your life it was a a big climb but you did okay i think we did we did similarly well <laughs> in that sense um one more time on the stage fright i think that's so cool because you're you've turned out then one of the greatest uh, legendary actors of all time and and initially you had this stage fright and you were terrified Everybody who's listening is also has stage fright when they go for a job interview or when they have a, a something important, a meeting that they have to do or whatever. Um, can you tell us how you overcame that, this grinding that you said? Because right. I think that's such an important and crucial attribute um, on your way to improving as a human being. Two things happened. One, I was very fortunate to get a television series. Uh, it was called The Streets of San Francisco, The Stress of San Francisco uh, over here. Um, and by the fact of doing a series, which I did 104 hours, and by being in front of the camera just constantly and not worrying about rejection because it was a series, um, that gave me much more uh, confidence uh, about with the camera. Cameras are a lot like your x-ray machine in, in your dentist's office. You know, they're very intimidating looking. In the old days, they used to be even bigger than they are um, now. So doing that series not only helped me get more confident with the camera, but I also learned a tremendous amount about, about screenwriting and characters and all of that. And then the other thing that happened after I've been working a little while is somebody early on told me the camera can always tell when you're lying. Well, that was so intimidating. So the camera can always tell when I'm lying. You know, there's a while as an actor where I developed this method need to feel the pain or the anguish to try to be truthful, you know, to everything. And it wasn't until later in my career, it wasn't really to like Fatal Attraction. Fatal Attraction was later when I read the script and I was starting my, the camera can tell you lines. Okay, this character, he's a lawyer. Well, I, 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 could, I could be a lawyer. He lives in New York. Yeah, I, I live in New York. He's an adulterer. Well, I could be, uh, I could be an adulterer. And then all of a sudden I realized acting is not about the camera telling you lying. We lie every day. I tell a white lie probably an average at least once a day, sometimes a big lie. <laughs> acting is about lying. And so once I realized that, I mean, telling stories and everything, we're just trying to convince people, aren't we? That's all we're trying to do. 
So once I realized that, I said, no, it's really about lying. It's not necessarily having to recreate your, your, uh, your feelings. It's about making people think that you're telling the truth. And just making that twist freed me up and gave me uh, not more confidence, but just gave me much more freedom in front of a camera to say, I can say anything I want because they don't know whether I'm telling the truth or not. So you've learned that you're a good liar. I'm a good liar. <laughs> <laughs> one, of the, one of the key elements of being a good actor, I think, is being a good liar. Okay. Um, so just in a nutshell, then, I think what, what it is is having this courage to put yourself into discomfort over and over again, into yes. the stage fright. Yes. And just pushing flat out into it. Yes. I don't care. I'm going for it. I want to improve. Exactly. And I yes. think that's what you uh, really showed. Thank you, Nick. That's exactly right. I was not a natural actor. It did not come easy to me. Um, early on, I was really bad. And um, I, I, I worked, worked at it and just uh, got better. I mean, you started in carts, right? Yep. So and I know, but you and you obviously had a, a, a great talent. I don't know if there was any moment where you questioned um, your talent, and you were very competitive, or were you were you already national champions right from the very beginning? Ah, don't be, don't be shy. Don't be. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm not the self confident uh, the self confident guy. I'm right. more the guy who always questions himself and thinks, oh, I'm probably never going to manage that. But I am absolutely with you on the grinding. <laughs> right. I right. am such an extreme. Like I so never. So you worked at it. You you flat worked, out yeah, every single yeah, day, yeah. all day long. Also because I'm pretty sure there's out guys out there who had a little bit more talent than me. Right. And definitely much more self confidence than me. But I made up for it with the hard work. Yeah. That's it. And I think that's uh, something we can relate on as well. And yeah. even taking a psych I, I worked for 10 years with a psychologist right. and a philosopher for improving my mental side. Really? Uh, Just yeah. It, it, working on my fear of failure, stage fright in our sport, which yeah. is fear of failure. Same thing. To really try and improve on all aspects. And I'm, uh, and I'm certain that that was a huge asset in the end, and which allowed me to become world champion and, right. and achieve my dream. So a lot of similarities there. And I think um, it's, a, it's a common necessary ingredient to success, right. I, I'm sure. Um, can you remember one of the most powerful grinding moments to get a role that you wanted? Like where you uh, did not let go and, and you got that one role that you had to have to get a breakthrough or, or something? Is there some special story or moment like that? Well, I had a unique situation early in my career where as an actor, I was doing this television series, which was a big success uh, on television. And at the same time, I had read this book, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and was fortunate enough that my father had originally controlled the rights to it years before and was, was trying to sell it. And I had never thought of myself as a producer at all, but I loved this book. It just was one of the best books I had ever read. And I asked my father, look, I know you're trying to sell this. Give me a year you know, to run with this and try to get this set up for you to play the part of McMurphy, for the company to produce it. And uh, he said, okay. So he trusted you or your abilities at this point? Well, he thought he, was doing, the, he thought he was doing his kid a favor. <laughs> he had had no success getting it set up. He'd been yeah. trying for years to get it set up. And he was in the middle of, of, of selling the property. So he thought he had a, He was doing the kid a favor. And he, he did me a tremendous favor. <laughs> well, the year took on much more than a year and two or three. Anyway, my, my point is that I, I took a 
big gamble in my life. People thought I was crazy. And after four years on the television series, at its peak, I left the show with the blessing of my my co-star, Carl Malden, and the producers. It was unheard of to be let out of a contract. Courage again. Well, courage, but also a good bosses. We know a little bit about racing, and I, I don't imagine people let people out of contracts very easily and anywhere. And they let me out, and I, and I went to produce this movie. And that movie went on to win five Academy Awards, including I won the Best Picture uh, Oscar. So now I was an Academy Award-winning producer, but as an actor, I was a TV actor uh, who now was trying to get into movies and had a very different... So early in my career, I had pictures that I produced, like a movie called Starman that Jeff Bridges did, which I wanted to do the part, but I was not approved by the studios to do that part. So I was producing pictures that I could not yet act in. And then I finally did a movie called The China Syndrome with Jane Fonda and Jack Lemmon, where I was able to have a smaller supporting role I was producing it that I, that I could do. So then it went on that there were other parts that I, pictures that I produced that I was not allowed by studios. I was not a studio approved actor. And then finally with Romancing the Stone, which was again, which was a part which I offered to several other actors and they finally let me have a chance and be began my whole career as a film actor. But really took things in your control huh? and acted and just went for it. You did. Well, very, yeah. very cool. On a lighter note, I have to go to all those legendary sex scenes. I'm very sorry. Of course you do. I'm very sorry. Of course you do, Nico. I'm sorry about that. Why did you wait so long? Because <laughs> the question before was grinding to get a movie or part that you wanted. Is that something that you like want to look forward to? I mean, some of those women are the are the sexiest women of all time. Right. We we never know as as viewers. We're always questioning. Like right. Well. Again, I've, I've always gone for the material, what I think is a really good movie, um, rather than a good part. I want to be involved in a good movie. If I have a small part in a good movie, that's great. I don't want to have a big part in a bad movie, you know? Please be honest so, now, though. I'm going to be honest now. <laughs> so Fatal Attraction, they're all separate. Fatal Attraction was just a great what if. You know, it was a great concept, very simple concept. You know, what if you had an extramarital affair and it turned out to be the nightmare of all times? And it was something that triggered everybody knew that. Everybody knew that wacky girl that, you know, that they were a little worried about and dangerous with. That was just turned out to be a very, very successful movie. As far as doing sex scenes in movies, You, you, <laughs> Please be, be sincere now. <laughs> no, I'm going to be sincere. Again, when you, you know, out of that acting is lying mentality, early in your career, you think that you have to have an affair and be intimately involved with your leading lady to be able to have these sexual scenes. And so earlier in my career, without naming names, there were people that I was intimately involved with. The problem with intimacy is it ends one day sometimes before the movie ends. And the discomfort of having to work with a partner that you've um, uh, been acting with, that you have been intimately involved with, and now you don't get along with each other. Please, one name. Is, uh, no. 
It'll so, stay, no one will stay. Oh, will stay. Yeah, right, right, what, right. What happens yeah, in Monaco and it's no, in Monaco stays, stays in is, Monaco. Nico, I know how popular your blog is. I mean, there'll be, there'll be a few of those uh, newspaper reporters and that. Anyway, so when, when it came to, like, uh, Fatal Attraction, sex scenes are a lot like fight scenes. If a fight scene in a movie is choreographed very carefully, okay, I throw the punch here, boom, your head goes back, okay? Then you're going to kick me, boom, I'm going to go over. And, and you go like that. You start off very slowly, like a dance sequence. Punch, reaction, boom. Sex scenes are literally the same way, uh, except it's important that you share with your, your partner, the lady, what you're going to do. So there's not a moment of feeling like I'm being taken advantage of. So it's okay. Kiss, kiss. I'm going to touch your breast here, okay? Kiss, kiss. You're just I'm you're in, ruining it for us. Here. I know. Well, you, <laughs> I'm going to grab you here, right? Okay. And then what happens is you then, and like with uh, Glenn Close uh, in that picture, you go, okay, kiss, kiss, grab, bum, 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 and then you pick it up, and then you go, okay, action, and then boom, you do it, and it all looks like it's happening impulsively. That's sort of the secret of how to, to pull off uh, an, an effective uh, scene. That was Fatal Attraction. That was one part of that picture, but it was a great concept, that movie. Basic Instinct, we went after that picture. It was 1992. It was a very conservative time. And we wanted, we being myself and Paul Verhoeven, uh, the director, we wanted to do a slam dance. We wanted a slam dance. We just, we went for it. And um, Paul, who's done some wonderful work and has that wonderful Dutch Calvinist way of, of dealing with sex, uh, I mean, we kept meeting with actresses, and he would keep telling me, yeah, there'll be nudity, huh? Yeah, nudity, nudity. I said, oh, Paul, easy, easy, Paul. Can make him a, no, nudity. Yes, Paul, we know, but this is not helping us get the, get the actress. And, um, and so then he was he, very excited about it. Huh? Yeah, he was. He was. <laughs> and then he, Paul found Sharon Stone, and, and she was fabulous. It was a wonderful role. She was great in it. But we had, I mean, the fuck of the century, which is what the, was, the scene was called, which lasted one week. One week. <laughs> one week of the fuck of the century. One week. So, sounds great. We were, yeah, it was, it was. But again, it's, it's, it's all about it, trusting each other. And, you know, as, as, the, as the man in, in sex scenes, you're usually the one who's, who's leading the act. So you try to make sure you have the blessings, the permission of your partner, she knows what you're doing, what you're planning on doing, and it just makes it much more more comfortable. So no arousal? Huh? No arousal in those moments. Well, it's not to say there aren't people in your... Um, I, remember, I remember watching my father when, as a young boy, having dinner with, like, Tony Curtis and, and Gregory Peck, and, uh, and they were all speaking about who was the hottest actress that you dealt with? Who is the one actress that you all... And they all concurred that Gene Simmons, Gene Simmons at that time was like, forgetting how she projected on screen, but just working with her was was hot. Because most of those people are dead, I am not telling you. <laughs> most of my people are alive who was in, in person versus uh, on the screen. But that's... Um, 
you know, it's it's part of the job, Nico. Somebody's got to do it. Sounds good. Did you learn, because you didn't want to become an actor, did you learn to love making movies? With I time? did. I, I, learned, I learned to love making movies. I love, I love the producing part of it. I love being involved. What I did not like was both producing and acting. Because acting is a selfish profession. It's about you, the part. You don't see anything else around you. Everybody makes sure you're comfortable. Are you okay? Probably like being a driver. and Everything's okay. You're right. Very, very similar. Yeah, yeah, but I got, well, very similar to a point. <laughs> but being a producer, you have to be involved with a 360-degree vision. You have to see everything around you. So when I did them together, you know, Romancing the Stone, Jewel of the Nile, even, even China Syndrome, it wasn't as much fun as when you're just acting and have the freedom, you know, to, to act. And, and the fun of it is the challenge or what? Or is the end result that you look forward to? Or what it, cause yeah, I, it's, I did it's, some acting myself in commercials. Right. And it, I just found it so damn hard. Like, I couldn't enjoy it. It's from morning to evening, take one, take two, take yeah. 15. And well, the process is, like, the process is tedious. The process, you know, the joy is taking this piece of material, this piece of material that excited you when you read it. It either scared you, it made you laugh, you found it threatening. You take this piece of material and you execute it to a point that you put on screen something that is emotionally rewarding for you and an audience. Um, and the, that's the challenge and that's the part that I, that I love. And how does that then translate with, as you're growing and you're becoming more and more popular, expectations go up. Every time they see you in, in starring in a movie, people go there expecting, okay, this has got to be the most sensational movie of the year because uh, Michael Douglas is in it. How hard is it to cope with that, with all this pressure, expectations, people... Um, That's a nice problem to have. <laughs> no, but I think, because what I heard, the one thing, because I focused on the, on the movie, on the material and worried less about my image. I played a lot of villains. I played some heroes, you know, people in the gray area. So the best compliment that I used to get, he says, you know, when I see your name, I don't know what it's going to be, but I know it's going to be good. And that to me is what I wanted. So audiences seem to say, you know, this guy's got a pretty good average. Uh, I go see his movies, you know, movies like The Game, which was like unpredictable, you know, movies you're not quite sure where they're going to come from. So I found that with my instincts that if I liked the material, and as a producer, I could have, even though I was acting, I could have a lot, a lot, lot to deal with the execution of that material, that normally most of the times there'd be an audience out there that would like it too. So that just gave me confidence to continue. And beyond that, I can't worry about the distribution or what time of the year the picture's coming out or, or if there's another movie. You know, you just try to do the best that you can. So you were able to separate yourself quite a lot from what people were thinking and saying about you? I never knew much, really, what people were saying. I mean, I knew the press that you're getting, but I never was a fly on the wall. I mean, I, I, I dealt with a little bit, I think you probably dealt with it too, of being so-called Hollywood, Hollywood royalty or second generation. And the assumption being that, oh, well, his father's a movie star, so therefore it must be easier for him. Same. <laughs> when in fact, it was more difficult because they have comparisons to make 
and you're trying to establish your own identity, you know, separate from your father. And the history in my business of second generation actors, as it is with second generation drivers, is not, not great. It's not like there's a, a lot of uh, second generation people that have succeeded in either one of our careers. Then go going on, what was for you the most challenging moment in your career, a bit more further down the road? Is there, was there a moment where it was really tough to keep staying on the very top as there was young guys coming through who were amazingly popular and, and they were getting on the ro all the roles? And maybe it was well, but difficult but for as you, you said, to... they're, they're younger. I'm not. I'm not competing. There'll be a new generation. You know, always of, of people coming there. Look, I'm celebrating 50 years. 50 years in the business. Uh, you know now, and you know. You, I think you change. There become fewer and fewer parts for for the older guys. Although right now I'm I'm having a lot of fun with a Netflix series called The Kaminsky Method and had gone from television when I began my career all the way back now to uh, The Kaminsky Method on Netflix. Um, so there, there now is actually more opportunities than ever before because of these, of these streaming services. But I think I just try to keep the same voice in my head, which is trusting my instincts. My first instincts have usually been pretty good. And if I execute them well, either as the producer or having a good communication with the producers, uh, I'll be okay. So you really like to go on, on your instincts and you really try and follow, yeah, and follow been, the, the inner feelings very often. Ever since, you know, starting off with the television series, doing that, followed by a Cuckoo's Nest, uh, gave me the, the foundations to, to um, you know, follow my instincts. Uh, I do not have many, many mistakes. We all have a, a few that you, uh, you made, but uh, feel pretty, pretty confident. So I can recommend that uh, Kominsky method to all of you listening on Netflix. Right. And you, Michael, are Sandy Kominsky, uh, an ex very successful actor who's turned acting coach and right. works with his agent in the older days exactly. in, in Hollywood. And it's a comedy. You know? so it's, it's a, a comedy, which so. is something I'm really enjoying, which I never get a chance to do that much. So it's been great. It's funny how you come full circle, starting television, going film, yeah, it is. never thinking ever in life you're going to come back to television. Never, and never. things have changed so much in the world yeah. that you've uh, yeah, no, successfully come back to that. Enjoy. It's great material, which again, which is, which is your, your meal, that's your food, is, that's what you eat, is, is good food, good material. Moving on, uh, you, I'm very happy to meet you in person also because you're a huge Formula One fan. I am. Uh, which is so, so nice to hear because it's not so common over in Hollywood. Right. Our sport is not so big. Can you tell us uh, your best like, first memories about our sport growing up? Like, what are those heroic images that you still have in your head? Well, I have, I have, I have a, uh, a couple. Uh, as we were speaking earlier, I mean, I, I go back to Sterling Moss and, and Graham Hill and the Brad Brabham team and a lot of what the British uh, Formula Racing was going on. But beyond that, my first uh, movie that I ever did, my first movie called Adam at 6 a.m. was produced by Steve McQueen. And Steve McQueen, in this movie, which um, I, I got paid very little but got to drive a tangerine orange Porsche 911. This is 1969. How much did you get paid? I got paid $2,800. 
That's not bad at the time, no? Oh, yeah, It was yeah. still a fair bit of money, no? Listen, do you talk? <laughs> so, uh, and that was, no, it was not much. You got the car as well, though. I read that. Go. That's so right. you can't complain so the either. End, the end of the movie, the end of the movie, I'll never forget, Steve McQueen held up these keys <laughs> and he gave me the car. And the other thing that he did is he sort of took me under his, his arm because... Um, Steve was a, a great motorcycle driver and, and, and a really good car racer. And he was preparing, when I finished the movie, he was preparing a movie called Le Mans. And uh, I would go out to the Willow Springs Raceway in, in California, in Palmdale. And he had, there was a great racer named Richie Ginther. And there was, I think it would, be, would have been a 908 Porsche. A little, it was a, had a little plastic second seat in it, but it was a, And I went out with him when he was training for Le Mans, and he took me out on the track one day. They, he got permission. I got to sit in the little plastic seat next to him. And was Willow there seatbelts? Huh? Yeah, of course. Oh, there were yeah. seatbelts, but uh, it was it, it was the, the seat was just to fulfill the requirements, I guess, to make it. And Willow Springs has a sweeping major turn, which he was able to kind of. This is 96, I traveled about 150 miles an hour with the desert. It was one of the great memories of my life in doing that. And then after that, um, the Jim Russell Driving School was, uh, was out there. So I started driving Formula Fs and, um, and then racing Formula Fs uh, out, uh, uh, out there for a while till I had an accident. Uh, Under the yellow flag. I mean, Ooh, that's I, not I a good one. You know, I was that's very really embarrassing. That's really not a good one. <laughs> yeah, no, that was really, that was really embarrassing. It was terribly embarrassing. And uh, I, I just realized that um, I can't do this, especially in Southern California at that time, on weekends when there are kids that were much more uh, competitive and working at it much harder than I did. So I stopped. But ever since then, I've been a, uh, a tremendous fan and have followed the sport for a long time. Um, have been fortunate enough to call Mansoor OJ a, a dear friend of mine for uh, for many many years. So I've 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 followed McLaren from its heights to its depths, uh, from all the wonderful years as world champions and and um, and, and 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 as they're working hard uh, now. Uh, it's been it's been great to follow uh, to follow them, and um, uh, also Lawrence Stroll, who is a neighbor of mine. In Canada, who now owns the, the Racing Point team, is also an old friend, and I've watched his enjoyment, his love as, as a major Ferrari aficionado in terms of a car collector, uh, and now the work that he's doing with Racing Point, the old uh, Force India team. Uh, so just to fill in uh, a little bit, Mansour Ojai being uh, the owner of, of the McLaren Formula One team, or McLaren Group actually, so right. he's the friend of yours. Um, do you have a, a cool car in your garage as well that we don't know about? Um, well, I have a hot rod. Hot rod. I have, I have a hot rod. I, I grew up, I belonged to a hot rod club. Uh, when I was a teenager in Connecticut, we used to race dragsters. So we had our hot rod club had a C dragster, class C dragster, which we raised. So I have a, I have a 1933 Ford with a Chevy Corvette engine uh, in it. And beyond that, uh, now I got a, I got that new Tesla X, you know, which I like a lot. 
Yeah, yeah. So you take the hot rod out in uh, yeah, California from time to time? No, I'm, no, no, this is back east. Yeah, back okay, east. Okay, okay. yeah it's, a, it's a street cruiser. Okay, cool. So if I come there, you will you take me for a ride one day? Of course I will. I can jump in? You jump in, absolutely. Very cool. Looking forward to that. Talking about taking rides, you are one of the very few people who have taken a ride in the two-seater Formula One car. The West. You are one of the very few, like all of, well, all of the people listening don't actually know oh, how, how does it feel in the Formula One car. Well, Can you, know, you the, please the, take us through the feeling? What well, is it? Well, it, it, it's, it was a, it, it's, it's tandem. You sit right behind the, uh, uh, the driver. And this was a series when they eliminated cigarette companies, you know, as, as sponsors. And West started this line. The, the biggest memory I have and was the braking. It was one thing we talked about, the acceleration, but your pressure on your neck with the braking, I could not believe. And I, I don't know, would you guys do a lot of training on necks? Yeah, neck is the one of the toughest uh, muscles to train. And right. that's the most difficult to hold your head up for the whole race. Extremely tough because your head with the helmet weighs 35 kilos right. when you're in the cornering. So right. it's like you're lying on your side and you put 35 kilos on your head. That's yeah. what you need to hold up. And that over constantly through the lap, like oh, it has over seconds be. and seconds. And I couldn't believe just going forward, the braking, the braking when it's going forward, how it just... Did you smack into the front or did you hold... No, uh, I held up and I went, <laughs> I think about it, this is, my goodness, this, this is a lot of, uh, a, a, a lot of pressure. I, it's beyond when you look at the things, I mean, you, you guys come out of carts and all of that. So I guess this is how you gradually just move your ways on up to faster and faster and yeah, yeah of course yeah. it's tighters but it, it, it's for anybody out there this is this is on on another planet you guys are on truly another planet in terms of your your speed and your timing i'm just i'm happy to see the safety factors that have been incorporated in the last 10 or 15 years i go back to mansoor to tonsena and earlier times and and uh, it's it's makes me feel much better to, to see the uh, increased safety factors that's going into the sport. So it was like a powerful way for you to get even more respect and, and passion maybe for our sport to actually experience oh, what, yes. it's, what it's about, right? Oh, yeah. No, I have, you know, you guys are, are, uh, are warriors. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a reason that you're respected as, as well as you are. And I, I admire you, Nico, we're talking before, but you stepped out at, at a wonderful time with all of your successes and to enjoy your, your wife and your kids. And uh, I salute you, you know, like many athletes and others, sometimes people, you know, don't leave at the right time. So I, I think, uh, not that you need any other uh, support, but I think you did. <laughs> It feels right. It feels yeah, right. Yeah. And that's what matters in the end. Um, on to a more difficult subject, uh, the, um, of course, your, the fight you had with health, right. uh, with cancer, it was stage four and stage five is the end. Right. So can you, um, can you take us through how you fought through that? Was it mentally, physically, what was the toughest part and right. how has it changed you today to become a happier person maybe? Well, yeah, I'm alive, right? Um, but the, the tough part was it, it went misdiagnosed for so long. I mean, I was complaining about issues and problems for over nine months, and they kept giving me antibiotics and this and that. And finally, after nine months, they discovered this substantial tumor. So I was not in a good mood to begin with as far as the doctors were concerned. And um, I'm, I moved on to my cancer specialist, but I got to tell you, I fired every other doctor <laughs> I had uh, around me till then. I'm sort of the old-fashioned way. I, I kind of went with the flow, you know. I, I, um, 
I, I knew this was not a great prognosis. Um, I actually lost during that time. There's a wonderful actor named uh, named Larry Hagman who did a television series called Dallas, and uh, Nick Ashford of Ashford and Simpson, great performers. Both of them had the same cancer I had. Both of them passed away during my whole uh, time of treatment. So I, I was very conscious of, um, of the levels here. But I said, you know what? Let's just go through this radiation and chemo treatment and steady as she goes, be nice to yourself and um, hope for the best. And then we'll, we'll worry. I mean, if everything happens, if we go through all of it and they still say, uh-oh, uh, then, then I'll start getting concerned. So I try to keep a pretty... Um, pretty steady, easy pace about it. I was blessed by my children to have my kids around me. <sighs> and, um, you know, they just really... You can take, <clears throat> take time if you need. <sighs> but they were, they were uh, very supportive, you know, without, you know, knowing completely what was going on, but knowing the degree. So uh, it all, you know, we all succeeded and um, got through it and then wasn't sure if I was going to ever work again. And uh, then Steven Soderbergh sent me this wonderful script on Liberace behind the candelabra. And I was so excited. It was a great part. And then they came to see me after I'd gotten a clean check. And they said, you know, I've got another picture to do. So let's wait a year. And Matt Damon, who was also in this, in this film with me, said, yeah, me too. So let's try to do this in another year. And um, I thought, oh, God, it's going to go. It's going away. It's, it's never going to happen. And the truth was that they were just being so kind to me because I had got through the cancer, but really forgot to take a good look at myself in the mirror. And uh, I'd lost close to 50 pounds, but by then was still about 35 pounds underweight. Um, and they they knew, rather than putting it on my shoulders, they made an excuse that let's take another year to you know get your health back. And, and so I'll be very grateful uh, to them for that. I'm sorry. I hope it was okay for me to ask that, and I thought yeah, it was yeah, very, no, no. It, very moving I to answer see. it all the times, but sometimes you know, you just have a certain a certain image with your kids, and um, and they were they were young and and uh, and very sweet. It's very moving to see how the power of fam of your family pushed you through that. What would you say to your young self now? You're 18, and it's just before you've done that decision to go into acting. You're in university with all the experience that you've now had. And that's on two sides. One, an easier path to business success. Right. That would be the one side. And the other side, an easier path to happiness in life, which we're all fighting for as well. What would you say to the, for those two different things to your younger self as an 18-year-old? Well, I think the trick that life plays on you <clears throat> is when you're younger, you're always rushing to get older. You're always trying to move and want things to move faster. And then when you get older, you want everything to slow down. And, uh, and what happens when you want to slow down is it goes faster. So I think you just got to savor the moment. I mean, they talk about making love or taking your time making love. And, uh, 
And unfortunately, it's something lost on youth. But when you get older, you realize that, you know, just take your time. Savor the moment. And I'm looking now at these kids, you know, because of all the social media is there. It's because of all this action. I'm looking at my 18-year-old who's going, man, it's going so fast. <laughs> and I thought, and, and, and for them, it really is, which is scary to think now it's starting at such an early age where they're aware of, of how fast everything is moving. Faites attention, you know, with artificial intelligence, the social media, the amount of information that you can consume now instantaneously, we used to have to take an Encyclopedia Britannica down off the shelf and open it up and try to find something, you know, which was published five years before. Now it's it's all instantaneous, and so I think that's the that's the that that's the biggest lesson. And uh, my only regret is not only to take time, and I wish I I wish I did a diary, because my memory is not. Granted, it was the 60s and 70s, but my memory is not great today, and I, I wish I, there's a lot more memories that uh, I'll have slivers of, but I wish I had much more memory of. I wish I had a diary that would remind me and, and, and take me back to particular times. That's, a, I think, a hugely powerful uh, point to write a diary. I have myself, my psychologist right. recommended me to write a diary. Um, wow. And it has given me so much because it's a way to, to be truthful and let everything out, put it on paper. Yeah. But even going back, like even one year later already, it just teaches you so much about yourself. Mm -hmm. Just reading it. Because you think, damn, did I really, am I crazy? Did I really like think that that was the most important thing in the world at that point in time? Right. And then right, I read right. it. I read it through, like, and I'm like, that's nuts. I mean, come on, slow down. I would yeah, then say. Yeah. And so I think that's really uh, nice to hear, and and very. It's never too late, though. You can have you, sta have you started. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I st what I started doing, which is helpful anyway, is, is just my my calendars. You know, is is going back my my you know calendars of months and everything else and, and years and and that helps. You know, I can just sort of look and try to remember where I was and what was going on. And do you have one one short recommendation? How to slow down? Is it, for example, simplify life, take times away from social media? Would you have what what are you telling uh, Dylan and Karis um, specifically? To, to find a Not way to much. slow down. <laughs> no, they don't listen anymore. <laughs> no, they, they, they really don't. I mean, they're, they're, they're wonderful, wonderful uh, kids. But uh, there's that expression, you know, um, unsolicited advice can be interpreted as a hostile gesture. So um, I'm, I'm very, very careful on that. But they're, they're, doing, they're doing great. You know, everybody can't be masters of the universe, you know, and um, kind of look at what's in, what's in front of you and do the best you can with that before we fantasize. And then be careful what you wish for. Uh, I mean, I, I had at a certain point in my career when I was on top of the world, I was overwhelmed between acting and producing, having a large production company, refinancing movies, as well as my acting. And it, it was not an enjoyable time. I would come off of exhausted off acting in a picture and have a pile of scripts that were in mediocre shape, which I would have to work on in, 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 in reworking. And, and, um, and I guess also to find joy in life beside your work, you know, to find other things that you like to do beside, uh, uh, beside your work. Yes, it's wonderful at this age. I'm, I'm an actor and there's no end in sight as far as acting is concerned. 
but I find myself wanting to improve my golf game, hit a few of those museums that I haven't been for in, in a while, you know, to try to open myself up to see if there isn't new areas. You know, I don't think I'm going to learn another language, but uh, maybe something else. <laughs> you touched on golf beside all the criticisms. You play with Trump. Or you have played? Uh, I had played a fair, fair bit of games. years ago, but uh, I played with him. Can we, what can we learn from him besides all the criticism? Well, you know, I mean, this was long before he, he got into politics and everything. He's very charming, has a good sense of humor, kind of a self-effacing sense of humor, a, a, a decent uh, uh, golfer. But all of this was a long time ago. So things maybe have changed. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in many, things have changed. In many ways. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, uh, Michael, uh, for taking the time. Thanks, You're in Michael. my hometown of Monaco. I, I know. hope you enjoy your time here. It's, it's a pleasure. I'm having a wonderful, uh, wonderful time here. I had a chance to have lunch with Prince Albert yesterday, and I think he's doing just an amazing, amazing job uh, on all cylinders. And it's, it's a pleasure to see you and, and continued success in all your ventures. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it.